Purpose, the reason for which something exists. Each one of our purposes were created long before anyone walked the earth. All of us hold it, yet sometimes we spend our whole lives searching for it. Our purpose is to glorify God in our mission, our relationships, and our legacy in Christ. Even in the midst of change, times of uncertainty, in times of joy. This is what it means to live life on purpose. Well, question number one for you this morning. By a quick show of hands, do you know someone that is handling the pandemic differently than you are? Maybe they have a different view on masks than you do. Maybe they have a different view on kids going back to school than you do. Or just all around, you would say they are handling this very different differently than me. By a show of hands, does anybody resonate with that? Awesome. Question number two, do you know someone that is a different political affiliation than you? Some of you guys are like, where is he going with this message today? Some of you guys are really nervous. I'm not going to make you stand up and respond, but by a show of hands, you guys say, yeah, absolutely. I know somebody that's a different political affiliation than me. How about this one? Question number three, have you read anything on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter over the last seven days that you disagreed with? If so, please raise your hand. Okay, and then question number four, the final question. By a quick show of hands, please hold your hand up if you agree with everyone all the time about everything. Okay? So what we have just determined here in this little moment is that we are all different. In fact, what we just determined here in this moment is that depending on who you talk to, some of you are right all of the time and some of you are wrong all of the time. Even in this room, we just admittedly said we do not agree on everything. And based on your honesty, thank you, by the way, for that, I think each of you, including me, is a prime candidate for this text that we're going to unpack today. Sometimes as a pastor, I deliver messages, and I hope that by the end of the message, there's some life application point that you can hang on to that you, will, that you can take with you throughout the course of this week that will encourage you and that will strengthen you. But today, I decided to just ask a question right out of the gate that would help us understand where we're going today. Because at your admission, not mine, at your admission, not mine, you just shared with the entire room that there's probably an opinion that you have that's different than someone else in the room. In fact, what you just shared with me is that you're willing to make a choice that's different from the person who's sitting at a minimum six feet away from you right now. What you also just shared with me is that you're perfectly okay being in disagreement with other people. Little did I know when I woke up this morning and prepared my heart for church that I was going to be in a room with such a difficult group of people. All joking aside, I'm setting the stage for us to understand what's going to be unfolded here in just a few moments in Acts chapter 15, because this passage in Acts chapter 15 is going to show us how we are to disagree with one another but still show grace to one another. In fact, we're going to see the importance of grace and living a life on purpose. And my hope and my prayer is that through these words from Acts chapter 15 today, that we will understand just more deeply what it means to live under God's grace, what it means to relish in God's grace, and what it means to show God's grace to others that we come in contact with. Know that I'm so grateful that you are here with us this morning. I want to ask you to pray with me as we dig into Acts chapter 15. Lord, thank you for 
this beautiful morning of life. I thank you for each and every person who's here. I thank you for their families. I thank you for uh, your word that's going to encourage us. I know that my words today will always fall short, but I thank you for your word, and I pray that it would strengthen us, that it would shape us, and that it would ultimately make us more and more like you. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray and ask all of these things. Amen and amen. If you have a Bible with you, Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be spending our time. You're going to see these words up here on the screen. If you have not downloaded that Rolling Hills app, please do that uh, because you're going to be able to access God's Word on there as well, as well as a copy of these sermon notes. But Acts chapter 15, uh, which is in the beginning part of the New Testament, is the text that we're going to be looking at today. And so I'm going to start us in verse 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 uh, to kind of get the ball rolling this morning. So if you want to follow along with me on the screens here, certain people in verse 1, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Now, the scene of this passage unfolds in the city of Antioch. And you may recall from a couple of weeks ago where we talked about that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And this is a Gentile city, and amazing things are happening. And the backdrop here is that Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. We don't understand from our 21st century mindset just how big of a deal that that really was because God's chosen people the Jewish population, they didn't really have any concept or understanding of what Jesus was, had come to do, what God had sent him to do. In fact, God had made a way so that everyone could come to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul was sent as the apostle to the Gentiles. He was sent as a messenger to take the message of hope to the Gentiles. And back in the early part of Acts, you remember it's where he had that blinding light moment. He's on the road to Damascus, and God strikes him down with physical blindness. And for three days, he kind of sits in silence, and he gets reminded of the fact that I have a plan for you and I have a plan for you to go and show grace to others. But ultimately, as you can imagine, this was not resonating so well with the Jewish population, especially this really devout group of Jews known as the Pharisees. And Paul, got, Paul went to them numerous times in their synagogues and said, I'm preparing you for what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is with you. He is here. He wants to make everything right. And you're either choosing not to see it, you're choosing not to believe it, you're choosing to think that maybe the other shoe is eventually going to fall and we're going to see that that really wasn't the plan for which Jesus came. 
But you know the story, and it's exactly what happened. Jesus came as a fulfillment of what God had sent him to do. And all of a sudden, the message of the gospel starts spreading like wildfire in the city of Antioch. And Gentiles start coming to faith in Christ. And all of the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees up in Judea and Jerusalem, they start catching wind of what's happening. And they say, hold up, hold up, wait a minute. We have caught wind that people are coming to faith in Christ and they're not being circumcised. Now, this got really weird for some of you all that have never been in church before. Or that you're not familiar with the Old Testament Mosaic Law and you're sitting there thinking, I wonder if what he's talking about is some figure of speech or something else. No, it's not. The, the, the defining characteristic of a young Jewish male was to be circumcised. And that was, in fact, from, from boyhood up to adulthood, it was the act that most closely signified who you belonged to. And who you belonged to was God. It was this covenant exercise that would happen in Jewish populations. And so for the Gentile believers to come to faith in Christ and not be circumcised was such a huge deal for these Pharisees. But yet... Paul is trying to remind these Jewish believers that Jesus came as a fulfillment of the law and that you don't have to live under all of this law. He came as a fulfillment of the law. And so God sent his son Jesus to the world. And he says, I'm sending Jesus to make a new covenant with you. It's not this old covenant of circumcision, but it's a new covenant of grace to be restored. Meaning what for circumcision? When it came to the Gentiles, meaning they didn't have to do it. They didn't have to follow through with this practice. And so Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and this is a huge deal for that Jewish population. And so they say, we've got to send down our leaders, and we've got to see if that's really what's happening in this city of Antioch. And so Barnabas and Paul, again, catch wind of what's happening. And you know, Paul obviously had some anger issues. I mean, he was breathing out murderous threats against Christians. So do you want to take a guess as to how this hit him? Obviously, it frustrates him. And he says, so we've got to go up to Judea, and we've got to set the record straight. And so they go back to Jerusalem, which is the center of Jewish life. And in verse 4, look what happens in verse 4. On their way back, they come to Jerusalem. They're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they've reported everything that God has done through them. And then all of a sudden, they see the Pharisees. And what do the Pharisees say to them? We hear that people aren't being circumcised. What are we going to do about that? No hello. No how was the journey. No, do you need a drink of water because you've had a long trip from Antioch all the way back to Jerusalem? No. They see Paul and Barnabas coming, and they immediately stop them and say, we have heard about what's happened down there. Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ, and you're not making them follow through with circumcision. They can't be saved if they don't follow through with that act. Now, as a side note, don't be surprised when God is on the move. Naysayers and critics will always show up. When God is on the move, naysayers and critics will always show up. That's exactly what is happening here. But Peter, in verse 7, Peter, who is so wise, in verse 7, he gets up and he addresses the crowd. And this is a crowd who's not in agreement. This is a crowd who is in disagreement about what it really means to place your faith in Christ. And what does Peter do? He keeps bringing it back to God. 
he keeps bringing the arguments and he keeps bringing the conversation back to God. If you were to look at verse 7, what does he say? He says, God made a choice that Gentiles might hear this message. In verse 8, Peter says, God who knows the heart gave them the Holy Spirit just like us. It says in verse 9, God did not discriminate between us, but rather purified them by what? By faith. Purified them by faith, and his grace was sufficient for them. See, what Peter is doing is he's looking at the crowd and he's saying, God said this, God said this, God said do this. This is what God said. This is where God is in the midst of this. This is what God is trying to show us. And what are you choosing to focus on? You're choosing to focus on the act that God said you didn't have to do anymore. And yet, I'm saying, no, this is who Jesus is, which leads me to my first point. You see it here on the screen, and you see it there in the app. You cannot add anything to what Jesus has already accomplished. You cannot add anything to what Jesus has already accomplished. Verse 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are saved, this group of Gentile believers. In fact, Jesus's, some of his last words were, it is finished, because Jesus made a way. And in the midst of the tension, he kept bringing people back to what God had said. In the midst of this conflict, in the midst of this disagreement, Peter keeps bringing people back to what God had said. And see, when I look at the current cultural climate that we're in, so much of what we're talking about, so much of the things that we're arguing about are things that God has already made it abundantly clear as to what we should be doing. In fact, God has already made it abundantly clear that love should trump everything else in our life. He's made it abundantly clear that grace should be what I offer first opposed to judgment. He's made it abundantly clear that I should seek to put your needs before my own needs and that I should seek to live at peace as much as it is foreseeably possible. See, we don't have to add anything to what God has already said. What our goal should be and what our desire should be is to keep bringing people back to what God has said. In fact, if you're struggling, if you're in a tense season of life right now, my question to you is, are you focusing on God or are you focusing on the problem? Are you focusing on what God said, or are you focusing on something else entirely different? What does God say? How does God want to guide you in that decision? See, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, if you didn't know that. What I have learned is some of you, maybe you've been sleeping under a rock for the last four and a half months, and I'm the first to break that news to you. What I've learned in the midst of this global pandemic, it, it has unearthed some other pandemics in our life. And one of the pandemics that it has unearthed in our life is that I like to be in charge more than anything right? I like to set my agenda. I like to have my plan. I like to get my way. I like to have my timeline. I like to have my order. I like to have whatever it might be. And see, this season has potentially unearthed that in us. Whereas in this season, are we setting our sights on Jesus? Are we setting our sights on God? Because see, none of this is a surprise to God. Did you know that like two and a half months ago, we said that all the time. God's not surprised by this. We're not saying that anymore. It's like all of a sudden we've forgotten. No, he's still in control. He's still in charge. He's still the one that is holding it all together. So we have to keep coming back to him. And we have to keep pointing people to him. It's what Peter was doing here. He was saying in the midst of this conflict, in the midst of should they be circumcised, should they not be circumcised, you know, should you wear a mask, should you not wear a mask, should you send your kids back to school, should they not go back to school. In the midst of all of that, you've got to be bringing this back to what does 
God desire for me to do? Where is God in the midst of all of this? Because, see, the Jews could not fathom. They could not fathom that Jesus was enough. The Pharisees could not fathom that Jesus' grace was sufficient because what did they need to do? They needed to add more regulations. And sometimes if we're not careful, I think we try to make it harder for people to come to Jesus than Jesus ever desired for it to be. He desired for us to proclaim a message of love and grace and that he is the only way to come to know the Father. But the Pharisees and the Jews, they struggled mightily with this concept of grace. And perhaps you're struggling with that this morning. In verse 11, it's why Peter says, we believe that it's by the grace of Jesus that they are saved and that it was that same grace that saved us and the same grace that saves them. Let's keep going on in verse 12. In verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Go down to verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. You see this up here on the screen, but a natural, broad product, a natural byproduct of grace should be a willingness to not always be right. Ooh. Oh, that's hard. I wish I could have taken this point out of the message. A natural byproduct of grace should be a willingness to not always be right. It's why James says in verse 19, it's my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. See, what is James saying? He's looking at the crowd who is basically saying, no, they have to do this. They have to follow through with this act. They have to be circumcised. He's looking at that crowd, and he's saying, you're wanting to be right. And because you're wanting to be right, you're missing the bigger point. Because you're wanting to be right about this one specific rule, you're missing the bigger point that Jesus is trying to show us all together. Whereas when you're living by grace, you quickly realize, you know what? I don't have to be right. I can't always be right. And I will not always get everything I want all of the time. Sometimes our desire to be right is eroding more than we could have ever imagined. In fact, if you wake up every morning and your deepest desire is, I'm going to be right about everything today, I would imagine on the flip side that most of your relationships are probably eroding. Because if you need to be right all of the time, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you the truth because I love you. If you need to be right all the time, people don't like that person. They don't want to be in relationship with that person. And your relationships are probably going to start eroding. And it's what James here is trying to say. No, you've got to hang on to the non-negotiables. There, there's no argument here that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I'm not saying that you should open that up for interpretation and say, oh, maybe there's another way and maybe that's right or maybe this right. That's not what I'm talking about at all. There are non-negotiables here. And that's what James and Peter and Paul are all speaking about. But they're saying there are some other issues here. There are some other issues at play that you just need to realize you're not going to be right on all of the time. And when you start from a place of grace, isn't it amazing what can happen? When you start from a place of grace opposed to 
always seeking to be right. It's amazing what can happen. Now, verse 20 is one of these verses in the Bible that is filled with so much wisdom. And it's probably a verse that you've never seen quoted in a leadership book. But I want you to listen to what happens here in verse 20. And I think it's going to blow your mind. If it doesn't blow your mind, there's something wrong with you. Okay, so look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. It's so cool. In verse 20. Instead, and this is, again, James, James writing. This is a, they're, they're all talking here. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Many of you are thinking, how is that supposed to blow my mind? That sounds like the least, the most non-blowing mind, mind, you know, verse of, of, of Scripture. Well, what's, what's really going on here? See, James says there are several things that are really important to Jewish people. There's several things. A couple of those are circumcision. Another one of those is, you know, uh, fleeing from sexual immorality. Another one of those is abstaining food that was polluted by idols, abstaining from food that wasn't kosher meat that had blood in it. All of these things are really important to the Jewish population. What was the most significant thing to the Jewish population, however, though? It was circumcision. And so James is looking at this crowd and he's saying, God doesn't require circumcision anymore. That's off the table. Instead, what we should do is let's write to the Gentile believers in Antioch and let's tell them they still need to follow these other rules, however. They still need to adhere to these other rules. Why would James suggest that? See, what James is suggesting to the Gentiles is you don't have to adhere to all of the Mosaic law. You don't have to follow every crossing of every T and dotting of every I, but we're going to ask you to give a little, and we're going to ask you to still follow these other rules. He's saying to the Jews... We're not going to require Gentile believers to follow through with circumcision because God's not asking them to do that anymore. But we believe that the Gentiles should follow these other rules, and we know that those other rules are very important to you as well. It's as if James is looking at one crowd and saying, you're not going to be right about everything, and you're not going to be right about everything. You're going to need to give a little. You're going to need to give a little. You're going to need to make some concessions. And you're going to need to make some concessions. See, the compromise only happened here because both parties were willing to show a little grace. Now, again, I'm not asking you in matters of deep theological significance, things like, is there another way to get to heaven through Jesus? I'm not saying that there's any compromise on that. But sometimes these disagreements that we find ourselves in are really rooted in the fact that I'm not willing to give a little and you're not willing to give a little. In fact, you see this there on the notes, but I have a very warped idea of grace if I expect grace to be offered to me, but I have no willingness to show grace to others. I have a very warped (laughs) idea of grace. If I expect grace to be offered to me, but I have no willingness to show grace to others, I see this played out all the time. Because, see, we live in a world where I want you to give me a benefit of a doubt 100% of the time, but I never want to give you the benefit of a doubt. I want you to understand fully where I'm coming from all the time. I want you to take time to understand where I am coming from. If I post something on Facebook, I want you to read every word. I want you to pour over every word. I want you to understand the nuance of my point of view. And if you have any questions about anything that I post, I want you to send me a private message and not post it right on my Facebook wall. I mean, that's what I expect from you. But what do I tend, and I I don't personally try to do this, but I'm just using the word I very, very collectively. 
What do I tend to do? I tend to take a quick look at your headline, and I realize that whatever you're posting about, I disagree with. So I don't even read anymore what you wrote. I don't ask you any follow-up questions, and I post right on your page, and I quote, I can't believe someone like you, a mother who proclaims to know Jesus, would be filled with such hate for humanity. How do you even sleep at night? I don't want to be treated that way, but sometimes I have no problem treating you that way. See, it's a very warped sense of grace to expect something to be offered to me that I have no willingness to show in return. And I believe that this is at the root of why we have so many disagreements right now in our society and so many disagreements in our culture. And I think it's why this is weighing so heavily up on us. But let's continue because there's some incredible insight here. So they come together and they send this letter in verse 23. And with them they sent the following letter, the apostles and the elders to brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. They pull this letter together to send to this new group of Gentile believers, and they say, you will do well to avoid these things. You're going to be surrounded by other Jews. You're going to be praising Jesus. You're going to be proclaiming the name of Jesus. You're going to be proclaiming what Jesus has done. And when the Jews see you, what are they going to see? Are they going to see a group over here saying, no circumcision, Give me food. I don't care if it's been abstained from idols. I don't care if it has blood in it. I don't care. You know, bring on everybody. Sexual immorality. Bring it all on. Woo! Is that what they're going to see? Or are they going to see, okay, we're not following through with circumcision. But we're going to follow through with these other things that are so crucially important to you. It's what Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas are saying, you will do well to avoid these things, and by avoiding these things, don't be surprised how God is going to use that. By avoiding these things, don't be surprised as to what God is going to do. You're operating in a first century world, and God is going to do something. Lean into grace. See, we're asking the Jewish population to believe that God has done away with the one thing that denotes his covenant (laughs) with them. So the least that you could do is make sure that you're just not eating meat that has blood in it. And I think that that compromise is going to further the mission. You may have never known that God's word gives you an amazing precedent for compromise, but it does. In fact, it's a really warped sense of grace if I want what is offered to me, but I can't give that to you. In fact, I don't think that that's grace at all. I think that's our arrogance. I think if I'm not willing to show you what I want in return... I want you to offer me grace, but I don't want to offer you grace. If I'm not willing to show you that, I I don't think that I'm operating from a place of grace. I honestly think that I'm operating from a place of arrogance. I think I'm operating from a place of narcissism. This past week, um, regardless of what school district your kids um, have been in, if you have kids in the school system, every, every parent, every grandparent that's raising a child right now in a school district has had to make some difficult decisions this past week. 
a past couple of weeks about what to do with um, their kids. Do we send them back to school? Do we not send them back to school? Do we do online? You know, whatever the case might be, homeschool, and a number of options. I'm not showing grace if I make people who choose a different path than me feel bad about the choice that they've made. That's not grace at all. That's arrogance. And arrogance and grace do not run on parallel tracks. It's narcissism. Narcissism and grace do not run on parallel tracks. It's why Peter, James, Paul, Barnabas, it's why all of them were standing up and saying, we're not going to place an, a burden on someone that God has removed. And it's very arrogant for you to think that your ideas would supersede God's ideas. So choose grace first. See, a, a need to always be right isn't a grace-filled decision. A need to always be right is an arrogant decision. And so perhaps we can take the foot off the gas a little bit and say, you know what? A natural byproduct of grace should be a desire in my life to not, not only build relationships and build stronger connections with people, but to point people to what God said. I think we struggle with grace so much, and this is kind of at the heart of where we're going to close today. I think that we struggle with grace so much because we forget just how much has been shown to us. I know I do. In my moments of arrogance, in my moments of narcissism, in my moments of I'm just not understanding, there is, I struggle with that grace because I forget what has been shown to me. See, when I wake up every morning and realize just how broken I am, how incapable I am of doing anything good in my own power, and when I reflect upon the sacrifice that Jesus made in order to show us his grace and mercy, I should not help but want to show that to others. And if I'm leaning into grace 100% of the time, then I'm removing those hindrances in my life that will prevent me from being fully utilized by God. My question to you is, does anything in your life hinder another from experiencing who Jesus is? Does anything in your life hinder another from experiencing who Jesus is? Look at verse 30. So the men were sent off, and they went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together, and they delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. See, if I choose to not show grace, then that attitude will hinder other people from experiencing who Jesus is. If I choose to start from a place of judgment opposed to a place of grace, that will hinder others from experiencing who Jesus is. How about your social media feed? If I were to put up here on the screen, in fact, I knew who was coming today, so I had Josh just put them all up here. Let's just go ahead. I, just kidding. It, but if it was all scrolling through, you know, is what would there, would that be embarrassing to you to be shown in church? Is there something there that could possibly hinder someone from experiencing the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ? How about those moments when I say something is important, but I live a completely different way? Is that going to hinder someone from experiencing Jesus, see, Paul was all about removing those hindrances so that the gospel could spread. And when we choose to live by grace, I believe in my heart most of those hindrances are going to fall. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but when we choose to live by grace, those hindrances are going to fall. Now, I could stop right here. we got a few minutes left, and i got to finish this up. Because, see, up to this point, I could just end the message and say, you know what, we're all in this together. Let's all hold hands virtually. Um, and virtually hug it all out. It's all going to be okay, right? Well, at the beginning of the message, you remember you confessed to me how difficult of a person you are. <laughs> Just 
guys are still paying attention. You confess, right? My words, not yours. You said I like to live in contention with other people. I'm just kidding. Not your words. My, you said I'm fine with disagreeing with you. We don't always see eye to eye on everything. Um, so look at how this passage ends. Because this passage ends, and this gets to the culmination of this interesting moment with Paul and his ministry partner Barnabas. So sometime later, this is verse 36. Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark and sailed from Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. We've been talking about grace. You have Paul and Barnabas saying, why don't we go back? Because that some time has passed. Why don't we go back and visit all of these believers? Let's go see if they're all still celebrating the fact that they don't have to be circumcised. You know, let's just all go back and see, like, if they are, are they just all happy? And is everything going really, really well? What happens? Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them on this journey. But evidently, uh, Paul did not think it was wise to take John Mark with him because why he had deserted them once before. So I guess you could say Paul kind of forgives but doesn't forget. And he had remembered what John Mark had done, and he says, no, we're not going to take him on this journey. And it caused such a kind of moment of contention in their relationship that Barnabas takes John Mark and Paul takes Silas, and they go about their way. And they proceed on the way of what God has in store for them, which leads me to my closing point. Disagreements are inevitable. Disagreements are inevitable. Have your disagreement, get on with the work. Disagreements are inevitable. Have your disagreement and get on with the work. It's so freeing to know that at times I'm going to disagree with you and you're probably going to disagree with me. But you know what unity doesn't mean? Unity does not mean uniformity. We're uniform. We strive for uniformity. We strive to be on the same page when it comes to matters of deep theological richness. Things like, who is Jesus and what did Jesus come to do? But unity means that at times, we're going to have some disagreements. But that doesn't mean that our focus should be taken off the work. Because what happened? Paul and Barnabas, they still go on their way. They still go on serving. They still go on fulfilling the call that Jesus has for them. The issue surfaces when I let my disagreements get in the way of the mission. And the issues are going to surface when I let my disagreements get in the way of showing grace. Nothing is more important in this world than for me to use my life to point people to the grace of Jesus Christ, to live in that grace, and to show grace to others. The work is more important than a conformity to the methods. The work and the mission is more important than 100% of everyone agreeing with everything 100% of the time. If we're waiting for that, we're going to be waiting a really long time because we don't have a moment in recorded history where that's ever actually happened. And so we shouldn't even be striving for that now. I don't know where you are today, but I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And in this moment of response, I simply just want to ask you to reflect upon where you are. Maybe you're here this morning and um, you would say, you know what, I have, a, I have a disagreement. There's a disagreement that I'm experiencing right now with someone and, and I, I've tried to just explain that away. But maybe this morning I'm, I'm needing to realize that, you know what, that's inevitable, so I've just got to have that disagreement and get on with my work. Or maybe you're here and you're just not choosing grace 
that you're choosing um, to live with arrogance. Or maybe you're here and you're trying to add to something that Jesus has already accomplished. Or perhaps this whole concept of grace is hard for you to fathom because you've not experienced that grace. And so whichever one of these is most reflective of where you are, if at all, I I hope and pray that you'll take a moment to just simply stop and say, I'm going to choose grace over everything else. I'm not going to add to what he's already accomplished, but yet I'm going to choose to follow him. We get a beautiful picture of grace here in the midst of adversity. Differences, challenge, my prayer is that your life and our church would look a lot more like this. Because when it does, we will stand in amazement as to what God will.